0: Welcome to the Informed Simplicity Project, a place for students looking for the informed simplicity on the far side of complexity. Today, I have a great guest. And before we get into the interview, just a quick reminder that if you enjoy this podcast, go ahead and subscribe and tell one friend. All right, without further ado, our interview. Today, I have uh, Jeff Zeig, who I am just over the moon. I don't know if people still say that, but I'm over the moon to have (laughs) An hour to talk with him. Um, he's done a lot, of, a lot of really interesting work, especially with the Milton Erickson um, Foundation and really studying the art of uh, making therapy impactful. So before we get into any of that, I would love for you to say hello and give us a little bit of background on um, how you got into the field of psychotherapy.
1: Sure. Well, I I was designed for the field of psychotherapy. I'm my mother's surrogate. If my mother had had the opportunity, she would have been a therapist and she enjoyed therapy. She was in therapy for uh, most of my adult life and uh, was a consumer as well as uh, an advocate for therapy. And my father and mother would come to all of the meetings that I organized. They were not uh, um, educated people. Both of them finished high school, but they uh, uh, enjoyed uh, seeing the meetings. So um, when I was in high school and you had to put in your yearbook, what is it that you're designing yourself for? I put in that I'd like to be a psychiatrist or a psychologist.
0: (laughs) So you knew early, early on.
1: Yeah, actually, there was a a formative event where, I don't remember the reason, but when I was around uh, an early adolescent, my uh, mother gave me the opportunity to be in therapy. And so I went to group therapy, and the therapist was just so terrible that I knew at that moment that if I ever became a therapist, I I would never approach that miserable standard. (laughs)
0: What, What was the therapist doing that was so bad?
1: It just was incapable of being empathic. It was, uh, you know, you had a 14-year-old, 13-year-old boy and you weren't doing anything directive, anything that was guiding me. So it was more of a psychodynamic kind of approach and I was lost in in the, in the, uh, the lack of direction.
0: Yeah. Hmm. So how did you go from, you know, that kid, who had that experience mm-hmm. that led to him saying, okay, let me go into this field how'd you go from that into like college and on
1: yeah well when i was in college i majored in extracurricular activities (laughs) (laughs) uh, I, i went to michigan state university and probably in the yearbook for 1969 when i graduated i had more extracurricular activities than any of the thousands of people who graduated that year Um, So I was in student government, and one of the things that was interesting to me was doing drug education. So I established a university-wide drug education committee, and we joined together with a couple of other organizations and established a crisis intervention center called The Listening Year, which exists to this day in Lansing, Michigan. And that was an introduction to empathy training. As a, as one of the volunteers who would be online to take telephone calls, I learned empathy. And that was the mainstay of the approach for guiding people. And that fascinated me. And then I got a job working with psychotic patients after I graduated at a community hospital. And that fascinated me. And this was the time of the Vietnam War. So a lot of my service work was organized around draft resistance and uh, helping people to understand their choices in regard to facing the the draft and going to Vietnam. And uh, then I applied to graduate school. When I moved to California, I was also working at a psychiatric hospital. I fell in love with schizophrenia and uh, I I found, you know, great joy in working with people who were really severely disturbed. And then I applied to graduate school.
0: What about that? Really stuck out to you because that's not something most people want, like think I'm gonna work on this area.
1: I I was, you know, good at speaking schizophrenic. I I could get in there with them and uh, resonate. Uh, We would have.
0: Your old therapist really messed you up, huh?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, no. we would have crazy talking contests with the patients. We'd have posturing contests like it was an Olympics. And I was uh, uh, one of the chief therapists at a subacute residential treatment center. So we could establish a program for working with uh, se- se- severely disturbed patients that weren't disturbed enough to be in the county hospital, but they weren't ready to be in a board and care home in the community either so um, and, yeah.
0: yeah that's not I mean that's I've done a little bit of work with that. I feel like more of my work is on the substance um, substance abuse end
1: uh-huh um, that's tough work
0: it is it is tough work, but it's also very different than you know, that, that work and um, how it sounds like for you, that was a lot of fun. And my experience has been, people often get bogged down by that work.
1: I could give you you a case if you'd like. So I I was working at the state hospital in Phoenix, and this was after I got uh, my PhD. And I had a resident, his resident's name was John. And he was following me. We were doing therapy with the patient. The patient's name was John. And our job was to, this was a chronic unit that I was working on. And our job was to get John from the hospital into the board and care home. And he was doing very well. And then one morning we came in and John was floridly psychotic. He just couldn't say a, a clear word. And I am being a very kind and gentle, humble Jeff Zyg. John, are you worried about going to the board and care home? Did something scare you last night? Uh, Are you okay? And nothing. He's just talking floridly psychotic. And finally, I realized that being a very nice Jeff Zyg, a humble Jeff Zyg, wasn't the best way of approaching this. So I said, okay, John, you and I are going to have a crazy talking contest. And John, the doctor, is going to be the judge, and we'll talk crazy for five minutes, and then John will tell us who did a better job. And so I talk crazy with the patient for five minutes, and I'm a little competitive, and I was doing my best. <laughs> and at the end of five minutes, we turned to John, the doctor. He looked at me, he said, sorry, Jeff. John Uh, i'm a little pissed off now because of my competitive nature and so i say okay well now john the doctor john the patient you talk crazy for five minutes and uh, i'll be the judge and after five minutes i looked at john the patient smugly and i said i'm sorry john john the doctor did a better (laughs) job of talking crazy and uh, then i said well fair is fair And I took off my watch. I gave my watch to John the patient. And I said, now, John the doctor and I will talk crazy for five minutes. And you be the judge about which one of us did the better job. And so the patient is, you know, uh, using some uh, akathisia uh, movements and, you know, acting as the timekeeper, you know, staring uh, at the watch. He let us go on for about six or seven minutes. (laughs) And finally we stopped him and we said, okay, who won? And he looked up at me and he made his first coaching statement of the day. He said smugly, sorry, Jeff, John won. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but the idea there was Erickson and utilization. And if somebody is using schizophrenic dialogue to distance, you can go in there and use schizophrenic dialogue to get close. Yeah. So it's a matter of utilizing, not analyzing what the client is bringing to you, what exists in the total weave of the therapy situation learning how to join into that moment rather than try to instruct someone uh, in some cognitive way about how to get out of that situation.
0: Yeah. And had you met Erickson at that point? Was this before? Yes. Yeah.
1: So I went to Phoenix. This was 1978. When I moved to Phoenix, I had met Erickson in 1973. And I had, that was uh, after I had my completed my master's degree before yep. I finished my PhD.
0: So would you do your, did you have a master's thesis?
1: I had did a you? master's in, counsel, in clinical psychology okay. in San Francisco. And um, the, then uh, I had written to Ericsson, and I had read one of the only book that was out at the time was a compendium of his papers called Advanced Techniques of Hypnosis and Psychotherapy.
0: By Jay Haley, is that, I think? By... That
1: was edited by Jay Haley. Good yeah. for you. Yeah, that book is no longer in print because it's been subsumed into the collected works of Milton Erickson.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, um, and then you went on to do your doctorate. What did you do your dissertation on?
1: I did my dissertation so, as a scientific study. It was uh, hemisphere laterality hypnosis um, uh, 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 and uh, it was a study um, that was somewhat neurologically based. It was way before we had functional MRIs or equipment like that. So I was using bilateral tympanic temperature, temperature at the eardrum to measure um, regional cerebral blood flow uh, and to see if there was an effect on hemisphere-specific tasks and if there was an effect on high and low hypnotic subjects. And fortunately, I I got an effect and uh, got my uh, study done. But at the time, I was orienting towards academics. I thought I would try to uh, apply to a university and be a professor. and, uh, and So I wanted a dissertation that was based on science, rather a dissertation, that was based on change in psychotherapy, which seemingly to me at the time was a weaker science.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so what can you talk a little, I'm always interested in people's dissertations. Usually people do really interesting research and then they go off yeah. in another field for their actual career. Mm-hmm. Um, so what did you find was our what was the difference between high hypnotizability and low hypnotizability? Good
1: question Nobody has ever ever asked me about that. so, um, so thank you. it was It was that um, high hypnotic subjects seemed by extrapolating meaning out of the data to suppress their left hemisphere. And uh, so that was the best that we could say from the fact that there was a difference. In tympanic temperature, which we took to be an indicator of, of uh, um, arterial blood flow, and yeah. uh, um, so um, but it wasn't something that I pursued. It's just that we had a social psychology department that was avid about Using tympanic temperature to say something about the brain. These are thermistors that were used especially at the time in anesthesiology rather than monitoring somebody's esophageal temperature, which is more of a core condition for understanding temperature during anesthesia. Uh, Some anesthesiologists were using tympanic temperature, which is a very fine thread, a thermistor that you that you just place against the tympanic membrane. And it was a very um, sensitive measure of temperature.
0: Wow. How, how do you feel like that has held up over time? Or are you not even in that? No, oh,
1: not again? at all. Not at all, because <laughs> now we, can, we have very sophisticated ways of measuring cerebral blood flow yeah. at the time there was laboratories in Sweden that were using scintillation detectors and you had to inhale xenon gas in order to measure areas of regional cerebral blood flow. And so we were trying to use a much simpler and less invasive measure that had some, well, you know, my dissertation, which is laterality hypnosis and uh, um, tympanic temperature I think the literature review was sixty pages and that is a very circumscribed area right but wow
0: so thanks that's that's fascinating I um I've talked to a few people who do a lot of like neurofeedback and that sort of thing and so the mm-hmm. the physiological part, part of this deal is really interesting to me. Um and so in that you somehow also met, uh, Milton Erickson. Yeah. Yeah. I,
1: um, was learning hypnosis. I had a supervisor and I was working at it as my internship for my master's degree at a community hospital. And I asked the psychiatrist who was chief of the unit, could he teach me hypnosis? Seemed like something that would be interesting to learn. And, uh, Unexpectedly, he said, come to my office on Saturday morning. I'll hypnotize you. And I went, oh, because I had all of these misconceptions about hypnosis. But I showed up dutifully, and I was nervous. So he started to do an induction with me, and I was drumming my fingers nervously, unaware, on the arm of the chair. And he said to me, watch the movement of your fingers, notice the rhythm, notice how the pattern of movement can change, notice how it can slow down. And that was the first example I ever had of utilization. And I said, wow, this is pretty interesting. What should I read? And he said, well, read Milton Erickson. And I said, who? He said, well, read Milton Erickson. And uh, so I sent away for this book, Advanced Techniques of Hypnosis and Therapy. I was a poor graduate student. That book was expensive at the time. It still is expensive.
0: I try to get a copy. It
1: doesn't pay. It doesn't pay because if you go to the Erickson Foundation where you can get the collected works in 16 volumes, that was a selection of some of Erickson's papers that was chosen by eventually by Jay Healy and some other people who had preceded him. But uh, that's an un- unnecessary book now. It's, mm. it's great if you're a collector and you want a classic. You have have it. No, you don't have to have it. So when I read Advanced Techniques of Hypnosis and Psychotherapy, I went, huh, again because what Erickson was doing was light years beyond anything that I was conceiving as psychotherapy. I had been primarily trained in empathic listening skills uh, using a model from Kharkov and Truax that was taught to me at Michigan State University, and I thought I would be a Rogerian for the rest of my life. And then I started to get interested in transactional analysis. I had training with Bob and Mary Goulding, who were uh, experts at transactional analysis and gestalt therapy. And I went to their training for a year. And during that time, I went to Phoenix to start studying with Milton Erickson. And uh, then I made frequent trips from 73 to 78, as frequently as I could to visit Erickson in Phoenix. And eventually in 78, two years before he died, I moved to Phoenix. Effectively, I took over Erickson's practice. He was retired. He didn't have many people to refer patients to. I got a job working at the state hospital, and then he started referring patients to me. And within a little over a year, I was in full-time private practice, really courtesy of Erickson.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I want to slow down just for a second and go back to something that you said. That slow down?
1: I don't know so, that speed. So
0: so <laughs> interesting. Because it, it seems like for you, you're also a lifelong learner, right? Even uh-huh. before you met Erickson, which sort of changed the trajectory of your career, you were pretty consistent and diligent in learning this thing that we call psychotherapy.
1: Right. right.
0: Yeah. How did that come up for you? I know that not everyone's like that. How, like what kind of led you down that path of really being dedicated to to learn this thing?
1: Well, what I saw in Erickson was extraordinary excellence. Now, when I met Erickson in 1973, he was confined to a wheelchair. He was effectively quadriplegic. Now, that's not quite true because he had use of his uh, right hand. If he would have to write, sometimes he'd have to guide his right hand with his left. He had more use of his left hand. This is the residuals of polio that he had when he was 18. And um, uh, so he was ataxic. You know, he, he just was moving. He couldn't control all of his muscles. His vision was double. His hearing was impaired. He was breathing laboredly by virtue of half a diaphragm and a few intercostal muscles. He was in constant chronic pain. And he just perfumed the air with joy about being alive and I remember I was just so touched that this genius was spending time with me. I was 26 years old when I visited him and um, 27, 26, two years old. Yeah. And I second day that I was there, I I was his house guest. I didn't even remember how that was arranged, but he had a a bedroom that was uh, in his office area, and uh, I got to stay there. I was absolutely poor. I was, you know, choked with student debt. I, I didn't have any money, and so... He made himself available, never charged me a penny for any of the time that he spent with me, but he didn't charge many people in my generation who were seeing him then. He was clear, I'm interested in your life and not in your shekels. So, um, Erickson was uh, a remarkable human being. He was just so, uh, I was so enamored with him. And the second day I was there, I had tears running down my face. I just, I said Dr. Erickson, "You're the most impressive human being that I have ever met," and he laughed and didn't want to be on a pedestal, even one that was made of marble. And he said, "Oh, I'm just another old bozo, another clown along the path of life." And uh, so dedicated. Like this was a man who couldn't use his body. He didn't have false teeth in his mouth. His tongue was slightly dislocated from the paralysis. And so he had to relearn how to enunciate words clearly without teeth. And this was a man who already had an actor's control of his voice. So Erickson was um, so meticulous, like every word was surgical, chosen. And every gesture was surgical. And the meaning of the word surgical. And the meaning of the gesture surgical. So he. Was the most precise communicator that I had ever met, and I uh, spent most of the last forty years, less thirty years, uh, uh, trying to model Ericsson. About ten years ago, I got a different idea, and I started that I, I decided that I would model art, and that. You know my series five minute video the five minute tips for therapists, yeah. which has two seasons. It's about forty different five minute videos on various topics. And the the so if you go to YouTube and put in Jeff Zieg or five minute video five minute tips for therapists,
0: you can see this series. It's free. Yeah, and, so all all of my students need to go do that. Put that in the in the show notes.
1: Oh, super. Super. So the essence of that is that therapists are not using their medium to the maximum extent. That if you're a painter, you want to do something with a canvas that no painter has ever done before. And if you're a therapist, we hardly understand how to make therapy into a visual art. We certainly don't understand how to use proximity and gesture and posture and signification and metaphor. And we don't understand how to use the resources that are available in the totality of communication in order to have a strategic effect on a client who's hurting. So my um, area of inquiry is to help therapists to expand the use of communication. And um, to do that, I have, I spent a lot of time interviewing artists. And if you have a bold approach and an interesting idea and a camera crew, you can interview a lot of people. I interviewed Stan Lee from Marvel comic books. I um, interviewed um, film directors like James Foley, who did Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. I uh, interviewed Richard Sherman. He and his brother won Academy Awards for doing the music for Mary Poppins. And I would ask these people how they thought about impact within the context of their modality. I'm doing a program for a university, a, like the Gross Center in California, 14401440.org and I'm doing this in October with Rob Capolo. and Rob Capolo, super genius you you know whose work
0: yeah Rob Capolo
1: is a musician a composer and a musical historian and he's the greatest deconstructionist since Leonard Bernstein of understanding how to deconstruct music into its component parts
0: and let me also say this He's also interesting. Like, like, Oh you know, boy, I would not have thought that that would be interesting. I would have thought of someone who's dry. No, he's also riveting.
1: He is riveting. That's why
0: I was blown away. He knows what he's talking about and his presentation of it is incredible.
1: He was one of the featured speakers at the 2017 evolution of psychotherapy conference. So I, I invited um, artists, I invite people from outside the field to come and give keynote presentations because I think that if we want to advance psychotherapy, the best way to do that is to cross-fertilize it by bringing in ideas from other fields and not just try to develop psychotherapy from the inside where there is less uh, ability to see the forest from the trees.
0: Yeah, wow.
1: So That's so, big... so, like this program with, with Kapilow, which is somebody who has absolutely no understanding of music. I am ignoramus. But uh, if I can dialogue with Capello, and I can say, how do you do? How do you teach strategic development to a, co- a composition team? And you have a theme, like Beethoven has a theme that he introduces in the fifth symphony. One, two, three, down and then he strategically develops that theme across a symphony. And so, okay, if I want to teach a therapist about strategic development, and that concept sails over the person's head because they've never had a concept like that in graduate school, but if I say your media literacy is great, and you know music and you've heard strategic development and rock and roll songs and classical music and opera. This is what strategic development is like. You already know it. Here's an example of music. This is strategic uh, development. Now get it as a state that you can enter into. So if you have a thought, a concept that you want your client to absorb rather than just going bunk and presenting the concept that you have a way of strategically developing that concept so that it has the most amount of evocative power. And strategic development is just one of the things that we can learn from music that can be applied in psychotherapy. We can learn how to use theme and variation, which is something that you've heard all the time in music, but now how can we use that in public speaking? How can we use that when we're talking to our adolescent children? How can we use that when we're doing psychotherapy? And um, so there's lots of the the grammar of music, the grammar of opera, the grammar of uh, poetry, the grammar of choreography, the grammar of architecture, the underlying grammar has some themes that are things that we can bring into psychotherapy because art is about helping people to get a conceptual realization. Art is not about giving people information. You don't go to the movies because you want information. You want to have a evocative experience. So movie directors know better than we do about how to... Um, evoke alterations in mood, and perspective, and emotion, and if I can meet with them and help them to deconstruct the methodology that they use, and I can help therapists to understand this because of their media literacy, then this is the growing edge of my work. This is what I specialize in.
0: How how do you help uh, your students and people who come to your workshops to learn those sort of skills?
1: Yeah, well, I, we may look, we may listen to Beethoven's Fifth, mm-hmm. and uh, we may like I could, as a non musical person, I could extract um, more than twenty underlying patterns that Beethoven was using, and then I could say reference Milton Erickson or. I could reference a great public speaker like Bill Clinton, and I could say, you know, I could I could make the transition from what you know to what you can now realize to what you can put into effect in life. And to tell you the truth, a lot of these things, unbeknownst to, to academic psychology, are studied in social psychology. So social psychology is about using... Um, implicit uh, uh, evocative communication and seeing the response that happens um, uh, between people when we're using demand characteristics or conformity or social mimicry or any of the other facets that we learn in social psychology and they mirror in academic research the things that Composer has have known since antiquity, and they use without knowledge of the fact that there is research that shows that it's true.
0: Yeah, I had never thought of it that way, but that that is true. There's that is a mirror of the other.
1: Well, if you if you if you take for example, I, I don't, you know, I, I want to keep up with you. So, are we doing okay together? Yeah, you and I. Okay, so like like a foreshadowing. Like if Woody Allen has a movie match point and the movie begins with an operatic um, music and there is a tennis net and we're watching a ball go across the net and then suddenly then there's a slow motion um, scene where the ball takes a lazy arc and it hits the top of the net, and then it's suspended in space. And the narrator is talking about luck and which way it lands determines may determine who wins the game. Well, 80 minutes later in the movie, the protagonist, who also happens to be an antagonist in this movie, takes a piece of jewelry, throws it to the river. It takes the same slow, lazy arc and it hits the top of the fence and bounces up, and where it lands determines the destiny of that that man. And this is foreshadowing. Now, foreshadowing is used in music. Foreshadowing is used in literature. Foreshadowing is used in theater. The Russian playwright Chekhov said that if... The curtain opens for the first act and there's a gun over the mantel. Somebody's going to get shot by the third act. Now, this is a very powerful form of strategic communication. It has been used since antiquity. Sophocles used it and uh, Shakespeare used it and Spielberg used it. And no therapist other than Milton Erickson ever used this. And um, it's a, uh, but if we study priming, the work of John Barg at Yale University, a preeminent social psychologist, we know that there's research that presenting a cue increases the accessibility of the target when the target is presented later. So even though Woody Allen is doing this pro forma because this is what great directors do, and if you read Salman Rushdie, he's... Doing this all the time is what great writers do, but no therapist other than Milton Erickson did this, and there were great dramatists who were therapists like Virginia Satir and Salvador Mnuchin. And they um, uh, certainly knew drama, but they never got the idea of seeding a concept prior to presenting it as a way of increasing the accessibility of that concept once the concept is presented. And Erickson was just doing this all the time. And uh, not only across uh, one hour, but even across sessions, he would seed a concept for a future session. And um, where there was no social psychology research then to prove that this would work. But somehow Erickson in his own mind or by virtue of reading great literature and understanding the literary apparatus that was put into place, which, by the way, nobody wants to do because nobody wants to read for understanding the grammar of literature. You read for enjoyment and you read for the pleasure of being transported into a different world. You don't look at the structure of the sentence you don't understand that this writer is using a suspensive sentence with three modifiers.
0: Nobody for wants example. a joke explained. Nobody I wants want a to joke laugh.
1: explained. Now, that's the difference between heaven and hell.
0: In yeah. heaven, they <laughs> tell
1: jokes and hell, they explain, explain them. them. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah. So I, I hope I'm not getting too intellectual for you.
0: No, I mean, I think you're, you're answering a question that I personally have been trying to answer for a long time because you do read a lot uh, or i do read a lot of um social social science
1: Mm -hmm. sort of
0: stuff and there are all these sort of sorts of effects that um that that they show that have great impact on people but then when you read this research on therapy there's there's like almost it's like they don't even know that the other exists no
1: they don't Um, and the social scientists are not necessarily interested in applications they're interested in science and what you can say about the human social system right. but some applications happen there's an yeah. interesting uh, crossover Robert Cialdini who is at Arizona State University wrote a book called Influence which yeah. taught which is a very good book for therapists to read about um, studying how influence purveyors work and cross-referencing that with social psychology research you know, I'm avid about learning about therapy. I, I have an online class. This is my third year, and I had two beta versions. We have a tremendous archive at the Erickson Foundation, one of the greatest archives of audio and video of psychotherapy in the latter half of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st. So I have video of uh, Whitaker and Mnuchin and Albert Ellis and Tim Beck and you know, um, great. So I I did a series on masters of psychotherapy and I got 25 students and we use zoom, this platform that we're on now. And uh, I would send my students a video of Carl Rogers from the 1985 evolution of psychotherapy conference. And we would look at what Carl Rogers did. And then we would dust it off and try to make it more experiential and bring it into the 21st century. And so um, now I've increased the size of that class. I have students from all around the world. And January, we looked at Rogers. In February, we looked at Irv Polster and Gestalt Therapy. And uh, in March, we're doing Virginia Satir. And in April, we're doing Salvador Mnuchin. I'm the curator of the Salvador Mnuchin archives. Really? Sal was a friend for many years and... After he passed away, he made me the curator. So, if you go to psychotherapyvideo.com, <laughs> uh,
0: I'm sorry. Can... I'm just really like what you're talking about is just I think just so just so cool and so and so fun.
1: Yeah, it's uh, and to I'm be learning these- because
0: yeah. I'm I'm
1: watching these masters. I've seen them before. I learn new things when I re-see them. And I'm, you know, continually tweaking my practice, always learning how can I increase the density of my communication to make it more powerful in reaching somebody else's heart, somebody else's soul.
0: Yeah, man. That's, yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm not at all on that sort of level that you are I have been watching a few tapes on um, uh, psychotherapy.net mm-hmm. I, yeah and, wonderful and I tell all my students I give them extra credit if they watch tapes because I think it's so needed and you do just by watching you pick up so much you pick up mm-hmm. little things um, and different ways to to do things you know I've I watched through a bunch of uh, Virginia Satir tapes and she is I love how she will do this thing when she'll get close She'll get close, to get other people to get close. And it's remarkable what happens, just not by doing anything verbally, but by just literally bringing people in closer proximity of each other. It changes things.
1: Nobody made contact like Virginia Satir. She was the, the, uh, the doyen of, of con- connection. When I had her do a keynote speech at one of my conferences, uh, everybody you know, left the room saying she was talking to me. <laughs> she you know, probably she, was <laughs> and she might have been so she she was fantastic yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and i the i have in psychotherapyvideo.com uh it's a, a a workshop by virginia satir and you can go on psychotherapy com watch this workshop the second tape it, second section of that series is a family therapy session that Virginia does with a boy who's school refusing. The whole workshop is working with one family and demonstrating the different techniques that Virginia used, like uh, using uh, parts parties and family reconstruction, and using her model of making psychotherapy into an art. Yeah. And that's that hour of Virginia with this young man um, uh, who uh, the family uh, it's, a, it's a, an only child who's doing school infusional mother and father. And it is a peerless session of family therapy, amazing session of family therapy, also available on psychotherapyvideo.com. But if you uh, went to psycho- psychotherapy.net, uh, and you wanted to see Irv Yalom, yeah. Victor Yalom, who operates psychotherapy.net, Irv's son, did a, a marvelous interview series with Irv, with examples with different patients of Irv doing existential therapy, and also peerless.
0: Yeah, because then you also get the client perspective. That's fascinating.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I might need to put that on my queue. Man. How do you, oh well, I guess this is part of your um, part of your benefit as you, you this is your job. So you, so you have time to do all of this. I'm trying to fit this in between seeing clients. Yes. You know.
1: And seeing clients and uh, I travel a hundred thousand miles a year training therapists, mostly out of the country. And this year I'll be in Italy. I'll be in South America. I'll be in Mexico. I have been in Mexico. I'll be in China twice. I'll be in Japan. I'll be in Taiwan. Psychotherapy is an American export because yeah, we got such a jump on that. Country? Well, you know, when World War II, when Europe was decimated, psychotherapy for the first 60 years from 1885 until World War II was a European invention. And it was mostly happening um, around Vienna in Europe, around Freud and the people who followed Freud, and when Europe was decimated, in order to do therapy, you have to have a post scarcity consciousness if if the if you're If you're worried about putting bread on the table and shelter for your family, you don't care about your neurosis you you have a job to do, so you can only develop therapy in post scarcity consciousness and post scarcity society and the United States was perfect after World War II. So we got a jump on developing psychotherapy and now we continue to export it around the world. And now that China, for example, has become a uh, post-scarcity society in many of the major cities, then uh, my books are now translated into Chinese and um, that's a, a very avid market for learning about psychotherapy. Also, learning about coaching. So they're they're bringing many experts to China to to um, develop the standard. And eventually, I'm sure that there'll be a more endemic form of psychotherapy that represents Chinese culture and probably they'll be exporting to us after some uh, decades or decade or two
0: probably yeah I, I've seen that a lot I think I um I've seen a few other people who they do a lot of traveling overseas China mm-hmm. Australia and I'm always curious why that happens um because I was just like the U.S. is so big surely you can do you know one in every state but maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe there's more of a demand overseas as well. More
1: literature that's in English yeah. that about psychotherapy. And so my books are in 14 languages and uh, that is the entree to speaking in other countries. Yeah.
0: Wow. Okay. So my mind is blown. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, it's a pleasure.
1: <laughs> Well, we, we we have covered in We've covered a very a condensed form a, a real
0: lot, yeah. Covered a lot. Where 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 do you think is a good place to start with your work? Like if you well, uh, wanted to mm-hmm. begin to look into this, where should they start?
1: Well, I have many lectures that are free on YouTube. And so you can access um, California Southern University, which I'm affiliated with, has a, a channel, a, Jeff, a lot of Jeff Zeig videos that were done in studio quality, uh, but there's other YouTube videos in the five-minute video series. And um, the Erickson Foundation, erickson-foundation.org, has a press. And so four of my most recent books are published through the Erickson Foundation Press, There's one book on hypnotic induction for those who want to learn about that. And to me, hypnosis is the mother of experiential approaches to psychotherapy. It's not a didactic approach, an experiential approach. Then there's a second book, which is the anatomy of an intervention. This is one that was just translated into Chinese, which is my model of brief therapy that I've been teaching for more than 40 years And then there's another book called Psycho Aerobics that is about therapist development. And it's using techniques for training actors and and systematically applying them in a graduated systematic form to how to be a better therapist. And then there's a new book that just came out this week in ebook format called Evocation. And that is a more advanced development about evocative techniques of psychotherapy. How do you use signification? How do you use metaphor? How do you do strategic development? How do you do utilization? And that book consists of two transcripts of me discussing Milton Erickson so I lay a platform of uh, some of the evocative ex- experiential methods, and then I use transcripts of Erikson to illustrate how those things happened in practice. Yeah. And then I'm working on another book right now that I hope to have finished by the end of the year, which is on attunement. And this is the strategic use of social mimicry as a precursor to empathy that this is the socio-evolutionary biological basis of empathy, this attunement. And then I'm also working simultaneously on Erickson's biography. So I hope to finish uh, two books this year, but that requires that um, people like yourself don't call me to do interviews. (laughs) So that I have time to do all of these projects.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I am. I'm eagerly awaiting uh, that that biography. I have it marked on my calendar. I'm
1: yeah, me I'm too. Ready
0: for it to come out.
1: I've interviewed more than a hundred people, and many members of the Erickson family, brothers and sisters, the sisters of Erickson. and uh, it's it, it's a daunting task. You know, yeah. I'm an okay writer, but writing a biography is beyond my capacities as a writer and I'm just doing my best to muddle my way through and take you know try to see Erickson was an inspirational life and uh, he was one of those people who was a wounded healer I have been writing a series about my experiences with Viktor Frankl that appears in the Erickson Foundation newsletter I've been blessed to know a lot of masters and so I'm trying, I have a meta program of honoring the contribution of forebearers yeah. and this is so uh, the Erickson biography is a really daunting task for me but i'm working at it and a friend of mine gave me a grant to uh, work on it so that's uh, that's been helpful and hopefully i will be able to put something together by the end of the year
0: yeah yeah how come and in- I say this cause I think that you would agree with me. Um, so I'll back up and give you a little history about me. I, I too, was inspired early on by the work of Milton Erickson and it really, um, inspired me because it kind of shows you what's possible, mm-hmm. right? It shows you what I consider to be the leading edge of therapy, mm-hmm. um, and of human to human, like interaction, human to human connection and presence. Um, and so I've been on my own journey to to learn and grow as a therapist. And for a long time I couldn't get any movement and I decided to then look at other fields. Because mm-hmm. in other fields you have, you know, Mozart's, you have Michael Jordan's, you have um, Paganini's, people who are on the far edge of their own field.
1: Absolutely.
0: Um, and that to me brought a lot of insights comparing these sort of like extreme individuals and one of the questions that I keep wrestling with is, um, in, in in most other fields, you do have outliers, but you have at least a series of outliers, right? You have
1: mm-hmm.
0: a Mozart and you have a Beethoven, you have a Michael mm-hmm. Jordan and you have a LeBron James. Um, and it seems to me that we have a Milton Erickson and a, we have wonderful other players, right? Virginia Victor Frankel, um but it seems like there's no one else who's as far down that path as Milton Erickson was. How come you think that that is?
1: I think he was lucky. He had polio no. and um, Erickson was a genius. He grew up in a family where he was one of nine siblings. And this is a kind of salt of the earth, Midwestern farm family um, with really good people, church-going family, and Milton Erickson was an anomaly in his own family, and had a singular type of genius, an unbelievable ability to concentrate, a dedication. He really wanted to be the world's greatest psychotherapy communicator, and I think that he accomplished that. And he worked assiduously, like you know, if uh, Steve, Steph Curry is, you know, the best free throw shooter, one of the best free throw shooters in basketball, it's because he's practiced this so many times. And actually, I I was watching Masterclass.com. Do you know that?
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I was watching Steph Curry explain how
0: to shoot a free throw. I didn't know he was on there, but that's awesome. Yeah.
1: And he's awesome. He He could deconstruct it down to the position of your feet. And uh, I could, you know, think I could watch a genius in a particular area and see if I could learn something about improving my uh, understandings of human communication and psychotherapy. And so I continue to do that. Now, Erickson, you know, um, like to see Mnuchin was just a peerless artist and Irv Polster you know, at 96, 97, just an unbelievably astute human being. And everybody chooses a different angle from which to come to psychotherapy. If it's about cognition, or body armor, or attitude, or relationship, or symbolization, um, people choose different angles and they become experts within that area. And I wish that I had been able to have this way of thinking and to talk with Erickson about it during the years that I knew him um, because it seemed to me that there was a kind of dissociative quality to Erickson where he could be reading a novel. He was very well read, extremely well read. They kept a list of every book that he read from the 1920s uh, through 1980 when he died. And Mrs. Erickson, they kept a list of every book that they read. It was an extensive uh, uh, undertaking, but they did it. And somehow Erickson understood what the grammar of what people were doing. Like the first time that I was there, he gave me a a, a book, not a very good one, Nightmare Alley by William Gresham. And it's a story about a con man and... um, the development, the rise and fall of this con man and how he was uh, subject to his own weakness with alcohol. And Erickson gave me the book and said, read the first page, which I did. And he said, now tell me what it says on the last page. You know, so I, I read the first page and looked at it. And I had no idea what it said in the last page. So I said, okay, what does it say? <laughs> And he said that when he was given the book by his wife and, and uh, daughter who liked the book, he read the first page and he told them what it said on the last page. And uh, so I said, well, what does it say? He said, read the book. So I read the book and I got to the last page. I went back to the first page. I went, mm. <laughs> it was there but I didn't know how to understand the grammatical understructure. And so, like, I play this game with myself. And when I'm on an overseas flight, I watch six, seven movies, but only the introduction. And I try to see if I can learn the foreshadowing and I can make that, so that it happens implicitly in my work, and I'm not thinking about it. You know, if Shakespeare wrote a metaphor, he wasn't thinking, now I'll be metaphoric, I think I'll use the Juliet as the sun metaphor, and I think I'll set it up by having Romeo say, what light in yonder window breaks, it's the east. He wasn't thinking about this. These things have become procedural memory. So I try to do things that will help me in my procedural understanding of the intricacies of communication and how to use those components by practicing them in working memory until they slip into procedural memory. So Erickson um, seemed to have practiced these things and did it assiduously. And I can remember him telling me about uh, some of his early training where he would see um, a a psychiatric patient and get a mental status examination. And then he would compose an intuited social history. And then he would get the social history from social work service and compare that to his intuitive social history. And he would do this for a hundred patients. And then he would get a social history and he would write out an intuited mental status examination then he would write a 15 page induction for a patient, cut it down to 10, to five, to two. So this was like a great athlete who just over and over again is practicing something and not um, just being a slave to a protocol. One of the worst things that ever happened in the field of psychotherapy is taking insurance which is one of the few countries in the world where you can use insurance for psychologists and counselors. Yeah. And this was a coup. that The American Psychological Association had arranged parity with, with psychiatry and medicine. But then psychotherapists lost control of the field, and it now is run by businessmen who need to have a code and an empirically validated procedure in order for people to to, um, be reimbursed by insurance. So the way in which the field has developed has become antithetical to art and has become grounded in science, where if you don't have an empirically validated form of therapy, you can't be reimbursed. And this makes therapy into paint by numbers. And then what students of therapy want is tell me the protocol. If it's a social phobia, give me one, two, three, four, five, as if psychotherapy can be as algorithmic as medicine. Medicine can be much more algorithmic than therapy can because um, if you're dealing with a physical system, the rules are different than when you're dealing with a social system. Gregory Bateson, the great anthropologist, said in comparing physical and social systems, if you kick a rock, you can compute the acceleration, the velocity, the trajectory. But if you kick a dog, it's a completely different story. Social systems don't work the same as physical systems. And we've made psychotherapy into a physical system that has an algorithmic procedure, which in my estimation, it doesn't, but I... I can't fight against the stream. And uh, um, this is the way in which psychotherapy has developed. And People who are working in institutions have to follow the yellow brick road.
0: Well, look, that was so many of, I mean, I could talk about that for the next hour. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't have an hour, unfortunately. Uh,
1: Jordan, you've been great. And I thank you for the opportunity to allow me to expostulate.
0: Yeah. Is there, is there anything else you want students to know about how they can contact you? Of course, there's yeah. the YouTube. It's you
1: jeffreyzeig.com. Jeff you can learn about my, my, my teaching programs. The, the main thing is to go to the Erickson foundation, erickson-foundation.org, my publishing company, Zyg Tucker, dot com. And there's different resources in each one of those three websites that could be interesting. We have a couples conference, that's couplesconference.com, and that's happening in April on five different models of couples therapy, developmental model, Gottman model, EFT, relational model, and um, the PACT model from Stan Tatkin. So people who want to learn about couples therapy, we do a regional conference in California every uh, spring. And then this winter, we're doing the 13th Erickson Congress, which we traditionally hold in Phoenix. In 2020, we uh, will do the evolution of psychotherapy, which is my main Um, academic contribution to psychotherapy, bringing together the titular leaders of different schools of psychotherapy. We've had more than 8,000 people come to that conference. It's like Woodstock for psychotherapists. That's That's evolutionofpsychotherapy.com in 2020 or com this December.
0: Okay. Well, look, thank you so much for your time. Um, You've been great. You're doing important work. Let us know when that new, when your books come out and I'd be happy to pass it along.
1: Well, that's great. And bless you for what you're doing and come visit us in Phoenix sometime.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd love to.
1: Okay, super. Thank you so much.